वेलकम टू सिंट टॉक सिंट टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टूडे डिस्कस द स्ट्रैटेजीज फॉर कंपेरिजन विल थिंक अबाउट कंपेरिजन एंड द टेक्निकल डिवाइस एंड स्ट्रैटेजीज अवेलेबल फॉर इट How does one compare say mathematical objects cultures gazelles and other kinds of sets across time when is comparison valid how does one organize libraries how are the devices of analogies metaphors models and equations different and complex systems only exist with similarities Mathematically speaking is all comparison paired can comparison be non specific why is persian lyrical and metaphorical and what is the long term future of the techniques of comparison we are pleased and privileged to have these in talkers with us here today Dr Jaydev S Atreya He is an associate professor in the Department of Mathematics at the University of Washington and the director of the Washington Experimental Mathematics Lab Professor Anil Bhatti is professor emeritus at the Center of German Studies JNU New Delhi His interests are in comparative studies in literature and culture and Professor Sunil Sharma is professor of Persian and Indian literatures at Boston University. He has an interest in artistic interactions between Persia and India. So Sunil might why don't we set the ball rolling with you um to understand maybe at a literary slash cultural level um you've looked at persia for a while you looked at india for a while so when you go about comparing two different sets in in whatever terms what are the kinds of devices you deploy how do you go about it what's the technique like um just give us a flavor for it and then we'll open other flanks as we go yeah um between persia and india actually it's a very um interesting situation historically mm-hmm. um because persian came to india pretty early almost a thousand years ago so that it 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 had a presence here and really became an indian language and there's a you could say an indo indo persian literature what we call in that has existed for a thousand years and uh, it soon became a classical language obviously uh, sometime in the 19th 20th centuries But, uh, What do you mean when you say classical language? Well, classical language in the sense that uh, you know, until 1835, it was still um, uh, the official language of the Mughal court and of large parts of South Asia, mm-hmm. um, and then it was slowly replaced by um, uh, English and also vernacular languages, mm-hmm. so that people, um, and not just Muslims but also Hindus and other communities, they studied Persian. um in school till the 20th century actually mm-hmm. almost till independence um as a classical language much as we study sanskrit that right. it's important to for the past 
to right. understand and to access our past. Uh, for but reasons of tradition. For reasons, for reasons of tradition, to uh, there was a lot of sentimental attachment to it too. Mm-hmm. For a lot of Urdu speakers, Persian is the influence really the you know, where Urdu derives kind of a lot of its uh, literary inspiration from. But at the same time, um, it's not a classical language in parts of the world. It's, you know, the language is a living language in um, the the larger kind of the Persian world, Iran, parts of Afghanistan, Tajikistan, so that the language has kept changing as languages do. Right. And changes all the time so that in a sense we are um, in with Indo-Persian we are kind of uh, dealing with a Persian that really dates from a few centuries ago right uh, and, and but what was the initial contact like thousand years ago it was um, initial contact was the expansion of empires mm-hmm. from Ghazni the uh, uh, and Lahore was one of the major centers of Persian. Um, so at one level, you had Persian as the language of empire and power um, that uh, Muslim um, rulers, as uh, uh, they they kind of expanded into North India. And on the other level, uh, uh, you had Sufis. But what about uh, at the comparative level? What, what did it do? Well, the comparative level is very interesting. So it's never been, as I was suggesting, a kind of a static language, which um, it's it's been pretty standard for a thousand years, which is amazing because there are only a couple of languages in the world. I can think of Icelandic as another one where you can pick up the text of a you know, a 10th century uh, poet. And just read it. And read it without much difficulty. You only have to look <laughs> up a few words. Mm. Um, but that is if you're a Persian speaker. So in the so ni- almost everything is retained. The grammar, the structure, the vocabulary. Absolutely. Mm. The grammar is almost exactly the same. Mm. Um, uh, aesthetic sensibilities have shifted mm-hmm. over the centuries. And that's a big difference. So um, when we... Do- so it's always been a metaphorical kind of language. Absolutely. And, and I think that is one of the reasons um, that it gained such a wide, um, you know, currency and popularity. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, whereas you have, um, there have been other languages of power, but they have remained at the elite level. But uh, Persian but is really... There, is there a way, yeah. Sunil, of asking mm-hmm. the why question in this context? Why is Persian metaphorical? Why is Persian metaphorical? Uh, well, it's, um, um, I think, partly to do with the language itself as it developed and um, um, uh, the, the the taste for sort of a, a particular way of expressing mm-hmm. yourself so that, um, you know, instead of saying things directly, um, you use metaphors and you cite a lot of poetry so that, um, you know, you have um, over history, you know, you'll have a very serious... So it's metaphorical at the yeah. day-to-day level as well? Absolutely. Well, and also that's interesting because um, there, you know, there are words that are used in Persian, the living language, Farsi, mm-hmm. Persian, that would be ordinary words for them, um, which, uh, for instance, we know through ghazals, Urdu ghazals, and they <laughs> sound very romantic. Right. But in the context of their own culture, in the Persian culture, they have a very mundane meaning. Um, so there are those instances that I think as Indians and South Asians, we kind of um, derive a lot of aesthetic kind of um, 
you know, pleasure from listening to Persian and Ghazal especially. Uh, but we are more attuned to the language's uh, metaphoric uh, qualities, say, than well, a native speaker would be. Yeah. Anil, is German metaphorical? Well, not uh, not not quite in this way, but maybe one could one could uh, argue a bit differently and say this metaphorical uh, style of speaking mm-hmm. is linked also to the question of feudal courtly usage. Mm-hmm. So wherever you have feudal courtly style of speaking or the need to speak in that terms, you do become metaphorical, oblique. You do speak in oblique terms. Because it's indirect? Yes, because because you, you cannot really have a frontal confrontation in a feudal right. situation right. of speech. The more the more you move towards, shall we call it? It has a, to do with the patronage structures and the power the structures, as opposed power to power structure, patronage structures. Then the mm. more you move towards, as it were, a communicative situation of more or less equal people talking to other equal people. Then this <laughs> obliqueness is not necessarily required. You mm. can be more direct, which mm. doesn't mean you you do not retain a certain degree of uh, of of. Uh, what you might a lyrical quality of uh, some yes, kind that and also politeness which requires sure. a certain uh, you cannot be rude hmm? now now the <laughs> distinction between contemporary usage and earlier usage is this that our speech is, has become very rude we we have completely forgotten the uh, way of talking in a, in a polite formal way which also means we require more time if you do that you require more time but the uh, exigencies of speaking immediately and conveying as much as possible in a few minutes uh, means that you you do not observe all the finesses and the niceties of polite discourse what I would say is that the polite discourse which is largely a metaphorical discourse disappears with the disappearance of patronage and power and is replaced by a mundane way of speaking which is not necessarily conducive to poetic imagery sure but if you but if you uh, watched everyday speech see the difference between somebody consciously tries to use urdu in india and who speaks in hindi the urdu speaker would immediately get into a certain degree of 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 um, of yeah. uh, your kind of metaphorical speech he would quote hmm? he instead of making an argument he would then say a, a quote from ghalib or a quote from iqbal yeah. or somebody else in order to make a point then uh, my normal hindustani i would never do that hmm? so anil just hmm? taking a step back what is comparison for you as a philosopher as well, comparison for me is, is actually a, a basic fundamental way of of dealing with complexity in the world whatever i do i do always on the basis of knowing that there's something else from which I have to either set it apart or set it in in relationship to. That is why my interest in similarity rather than difference. Comparison means that I bring a context of connectedness into the whole world. Mm -hmm. Nothing is isolated. It is always exists in relationship to somebody something else the moment you take this relationship seriously then you start to compare but com- not but the danger is that you compare uh, or oh, let me put it differently the importance is that you should not compare in order to create a hierarchy what the, does that mean that means that if i compare and say this and this i compare this to that in order to prove that x is better than y 
then I'm creating hierarchies. But comparison is not about creating hierarchies. That was the great mistake of 19th century comparative linguistics, comparative uh, philology. It wanted to create a hierarchy of cultures, a hierarchy of languages. Anthropologists used to do this. Ethnologists used to do that. Compare cultures in order to prove that one culture is higher than the other culture. So then, and how would one do that? Because these are essentially because of structural aspects, because of also, because also of theories of modernization, theories of development, racial theories, etc. There's so many ways in which I can say that if I compare culture X with compare culture Y, I can say X is better than Y because, and then I can create a list of reasons why it should be better. I mean, there has to be an angle of measurement there. Yes, I mean this. This is what provided intellect. I mean, this was the goal of providing intellectual underpinnings for colonialism. Right. Yeah. This is the, the 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 original origins of anthropology, sure. oranges, many of these disciplines sure. are, you know, in this hierarchical linear ordering of cultures, which was to prove that, well, what we're doing is good and noble because we're bringing, and, and so this is why it's so troubling, as Professor Bhatti points out, right? Yeah, it's, white it's, man's burden and all of exactly. that later on. Mm. Yeah, that that is very important. But comparison is essential because otherwise you then create distinct, separate cultures. You say then they're not related to each other. Either they're they bounded. Belong, either they belong mm. to the past or, or whatever else you wanted. But they're not related. Whereas comparison means they are related, but they are related in such a way that there is a, there is no power structure involved in that comparison. That is but the, why can't there be comparison of differences? Because it's a question of methodology. Sure. See, what, 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 I, what I'm suggesting is that comparison creates a relationship mm-hmm. and that relationship then has to be mediated in terms of either closeness or separateness. Sure. So you either, that's why you speak of overlapping, something sure. a mathematician immediately understands, you know, sure. set theory and Cantor and all that. You always have overlap, partially close, partially not close and processual. That means you can come closer, you can come, remain, you can go further or you can come closer, but you're never completely distinct and you're never completely identical. Right. That, that com- so comparison gives you the possibility of the plenitude of existence. Let me put it in this rather path- uh, pathetic terms. The plenitude <laughs> of existence, there's so much there, and, but it's, it's somehow the other also interconnected. So in German, they call it Zusammenhang. It was the, the whole, Zusammenhang. Zusammenhang, the, the whole cosmos is con- uh, consists of a relationship, a structure of relationships. But these relationships are not... Uh, relationships which can be fetishized or, uh, or, 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 or something of that kind, but, but they have to be examined carefully and, and seen how they belong together. Take, for instance, you know, this is what Sunil said about uh, uh, Persian and, uh, and Sanskrit. Uh, one important example for this similarities is a line by Tagore mm-hmm. when he was hoping that Hindi would become the national language of India that was long ago mm-hmm. and he was I think talking to Gandhi at that time he said but that Hindi would re- respect the double stream of Persian and Sanskrit and this this notion of a double that that our culture is a double stream mm-hmm. whereas the separation of these two streams has been the direction of of our, our languages in India or at least of Hindi and Urdu in India sure. and so that you then so that this double stream doesn't the double stream was a stream of similarity hmm? and usage and the separate streams, non-comparative streams, we see these are distinct languages and therefore Hindi must become more and more Sanskritized, Urdu must become more and more Persianized and so that ultimately we do not understand each other except at the level of very basic communication and in, on the mark, in the marketplace, etc. So this comparison means that you respect the similarities and the common commonalities of our traditions. 
And so what's the history of that? What's the history of uh, maybe syncretic is the right word? What's the, I mean... Well, the history is, in a simplified manner, the history is the history of our, uh, of our unfortunate country, which in the process of, I mean, uh, colonialism, which you very rightly introduced here, in the process of colonialism, I would say that in a, in a metaphorical way here, vast tracts, shall we say, from the Hindu Kush up to the Bay of Bengal, you could communicate in this vast tracts by slowly moving with the bullock cart from one end of the country to the other end of the country very slowly and you would gradually understand each other without necessarily having an right. interpreter <laughs> in between. Mm -hmm. you, you would reach, somehow the other you would reach. Right. But this would be at the price of imperfection. Yeah. At the price of fuzziness, which is a mathematical notion, the price sure. of fuzziness. But the colonial project was a project of dividing. So instead of vast tracts of languages, you split them up into grammatically perfect languages, each of which then has its own structures and then require an interpreter to interpret to you. Sure, so sure. my fuzzy, slightly incomplete multilingualism, which was very typical for a northern Gangetic plain sort of region, uh, uh, meant that on the one hand I was comfortable in many languages, but at the price of not being perfect in any of them. Sure. And this is, in my opinion, the definition of proper multilingualism. That you know much, and then you work very hard to become perfect in one if you want to write a poem. Sure. <laughs> so I know so many languages, and, and that poem need not necessarily be written in what may be called the, my mother tongue. Not at all. Right. I could have a mother tongue, or many mother tongues, and yet chose, choose a language which is completely different. And this is the, this is the life story of many poets in India. Yeah. They speak about two, one or two languages... Anantamurthy has written about this uh, very... Of how very, there isn't a single yeah, mother tongue. Yes, yeah, there's no single mother tongue. But uh, poets are there who have speak one language at home or two languages at home, mother tongue, father tongue, and then they write in a third language. That third language is a language you work on so that you become perfect in that language. Right. This is a completely different notion to what is called mother tongue in the European terms, where you say, where because of philosophical reasons, you say that the mother tongue is actually the tongue in which you fulfill yourself. Mm. It is your substance. Mm. Mm. Everything is in contained that. And we did not. We had that slightly indifference to this notion of a mother tongue, that substantive philosophical sort of a way. Sure, sure, sure. Much more use-oriented. I think we'll get back to some of these ideas there, uh, Anil. Is there a way of accessing the mathematical intuition on, on the question of comparison, on the question of isomorphism, on the question of... Um, some of the ideas that you would work with in geometry, in topology, and elsewhere. What is comparison for you? What is similarity for you? What is difference for you? Sure. Uh, in mathematics, you have objects that you study, but objects only really are interesting in relation to each other. So what is a mathematical object, just so that we are not... So, for instance, a mathematical object may be what you studied in high school geometry, the plane. Mm -hmm. you know, so the usual, you know, just uh, two axes, you draw these two perpendicular lines on a piece mm. of paper... And you draw a plane. Sure. And that's an object. But the object by itself is not particularly interesting unless you can compare... When you have a class of objects in mathematics, you need to decide what it means for two of them to be the same and what it means for two of them to be different. So you need a notion of similarity or comparison. So mathematics is the language of idealized pattern recognition. So mm -hmm. therefore, we're making simplified models of a lot of things. And then we want to say we can make comparisons. But I want to pull back to a point that... Anil made about this, you know, this uh, vast stretch of land from the Hindu Kush down to, right. let's say, the Bay of Bengal, where you could go through and you could sort of muddle your way through. I want to, I, I, I don't want to picture mathematics as a siloed thing of different subjects. 
where you only do one kind of comparison here in algebra or one other kind of comparison here in geometry, the most beautiful and lovely mathematics happens when you do muddle your way through in these liminal places mm. and you use notions of comparison that come from both sides of things. Mm. Uh, and then that's where the most fruitful and gorgeous mathematics happens. So for instance, you know, famously in the early 90s, Andrew Wiles proved Fermat's last theorem. So yeah. this was a long-standing 300-year-old conjecture. So uh, in that, he brings together tools. It's a problem, a simple problem in, in classical number theory, the study of whole numbers. Mm. But for Wiles and Richard Taylor to solve it, they had to bring tools from geometry, mm. from algebra, from representation theory. And they had to think of the objects that Fermat introduced or the equation that Fermat introduced in so many different ways and compare them in so many different ways. So yes, there are notions of comparison, there are notions of similarity and, and notions of difference. There's many different kinds of notions and the most interesting mathematics to me, and I think the most interesting intellectual inquiry to me happens at these liminal places where you can use many different frameworks of, of comparison. And you obviously don't just compare in a vacuum, you represent it somehow. You would represent it in a certain manner, in a certain grammar, in a certain style, either using analysis, algebra, topology, whatever. So there's probably a step before you get even comparing. And that's so, um, how does one abstract the process of comparing? Yeah, you have to negotiate the terms of comparison mm. at first. You have to agree upon how I'm going to be comparing objects. So let's go back to the plane example sure. that I started with. So that's an, ex that's an object that has many different incarnations in mathematics. It's mm -hmm. an analytic object in the sense that you can talk about functions on it and you right. can talk about continuity and right. differentiability and all of these things. Right. But it's also a geometric object right. because you can talk about measuring distances between points. Now, the geometric and the analytic objects, they're very closely related because when you talk about continuity, you need notions of closeness and that comes from the geometry and the measuring distance. Maybe less familiarly, it's also an algebraic object. It's a group uh, in the sense that there's an op if you take two points in the plane, there's an operation you can do with them. You can add the coordinates. So in that, under that operation, it's a group. It's also a structure called a vector space. And depending on which of these incarnations you want to focus on, the set, the things you compare it to are very, are very different. And are they mutually translatable to each other? It depends. Uh, so with the geometry and the analysis, it depends on the type of question you're asking. Mm -hmm. uh, so, But if you're looking at it as a vector space and you're thinking about it in algebraic terms, maybe the parts of when you're thinking about continuity is not as interesting to you. Maybe you want to think about it more in terms of, well, how do I compare one object where I can add things with another object I can add things, rather than I want to compare one object where I study functions to another object where I study functions. Right. Um, so this is, you know, you really do have to negotiate your terms before you start. Right. Uh, I was really struck by um, your statement, Jayadev, about the um, exciting kind of things happening in liminal spaces, because in literature <laughs> too, you know, we uh, it's somewhat of a fashionable term, liminality. But uh, this is what I've found that, you know, sort of liminal spaces is where some of the most exciting experiments mm -hmm. with literature, and especially with Persian in India, um, uh, in the early history um, that, you know, uh, where at the centers of, um, say, cultural production or literary production, there's a lot more sort of pressure to be conservative and follow traditional models. Right. Um, but away from the center, there are influences um, from, um, you know, different kind of 
um, uh, local practices, for instance, vernacular languages, etc. So that that's where you find that um, you know some of the the most kind of new kind of genres have come up in in the uh, Persian literature. So what you know. what would an instance be? Uh, an instance would be we have uh, in you know 11th century. Um, uh, Lahore, uh, a poet, uh, Masood Saad Salman, um, who was born in Lahore, but of parents of, uh, uh, you know, Iranian um, origin, uh, one of the first generation of poets. And his, in his poems in Persian, he only wrote in Persian, although supposedly, I mean, Khusro later said he also wrote in Hindi, which <laughs> meant any Indian language. At that time, we don't know what it was. But in his poetry, we find some of these genres that do not belong to the the kind of the canon of classical Persian literature. Um, uh, and yet they don't really, they have some similarity to uh, broadly Indian literature, Upper Brahmsa or Sanskrit. For instance, Baramasa, you know, uh, poems around the different months. Right. You know, um, that, that was a very uh, popular kind of form uh, in many Indian languages, especially in uh, folk literature. And we have a kind of Baramasa in Persian, now, this is unthinkable. So, so would that be just an adaptation of a certain genre from one to another? It's not that simple, hmm. right? So that in flavor, I mean, uh, you know, it, the language, etc., um, uh, even the, the kind of the form that the poet uses, meaning it's not a ghazal, but a more technical form, but that it's purely Persian. But the idea to have a collection of such poems grouped around the months of the year, this was not there in Persian, and it's got to have come from this sort of the liminality because this poet always keeps, on the one hand, complaining that I'm stuck here in the, you know, the, the kind of the backwaters of Lahore and Jalandhar, whereas the center is Ghazni and, you know, at that time, all these places, Bukhara. Um, uh, um, but yet, amazing things you know, came about right. in the liminal kind of space uh, right, right, that he right. inhabited. That's yeah. very interesting. And Jadev, if we go back to the uh, topological domain for a little bit, is it likely that two mathematical objects, let's say, that don't on the surface or don't apparently look or appear to be similar are likely to be similar in many, many ways? It's a hard question to answer. Uh, because so it's too general, it's, I get it's too, Yeah, so, so what, I, what I'll say is that yeah, I mean, let me, maybe I'll reframe the question slightly. Sure. There are objects which can have, like I said, different incarnations, like the mm -hmm. plane, mm -hmm. which, you know, you might have two objects which are ex extremely similar in one way, in mm -hmm. an algebraic way perhaps, mm -hmm. but very different as geometric objects. So oftentimes we make the distinction, uh, for instance, I work in, some of my work is related to a subject called geometric group theory, mm -hmm. where you make a distinction between the abstract group where that is the group viewed purely as a group theoretic object and its incarnations in where where it lives in some topological object. So there's a distinction between the abstract object and the concrete realization uh, in something. So the any two of the con concrete realizations are the same as an abstract group, but how they live, how they sit inside some other object may be different. And in fact, most of my research is on uh, what are called moduli spaces. Mm -hmm. So these are spaces where which parameterize. You fix a topological object, you fix a shape, and you try and understand all the different ways of measuring distance on right. that shape, all the different geometries on that shape. So every so from one point of view, the space is very uninteresting because every single point has the same shape. 
Right. So topologists would say, well, all of these things are the same shape. But now we say we want more data. We want to say all of, you know, we want to understand what is on the shape, how we're measuring distance on the shape. So an example, to, to make a very poor analogy, one might say, you know, I, I'm studying this wide variety of poems, but I'm going to now focus on couplets. And if you only were interested in diagramming something, you're done. Everything in here is a couplet. But that, of course, hides the wide variety and the mystery of what's going on. I mean, not all couplets are the same. Right. But when viewed from a great distance, they're all the same. They're all couplets. So this is what I mean when I say there are different registers of comparison uh, in mathematics. But um, is all comparison some kind of a process of categorization? Is all comparison paired? Can it be non-specific? Yeah, comparison is definitely not all paired in that you're al- you know you're allowed, encouraged, and in fact, you know you should think about comparing multiple objects at the same time. You shouldn't be comparing. You shouldn't always be comparing two things. You should be looking at families of objects. So the whole point of studying these moduli spaces is you're looking at families of objects. So you're not just plucking out two things and saying, "Ah, well, these two have the same underlying topological structure, but their geometry is." similar in some ways, different in others, what you might want to do instead, you might want to say, how could I deform this geometry into this? What would Mm. be a potential path that gets me from here to here? Mm. What's a path that gets me from Baramasa, you know, poem in a a Sanskritic language to the same uh, or a similar structure or recognizably similar structure in Persian? How do I get from point A to point B? Not just, I want to compare what is at point A and what it is at point B. So I want to I think a theme that's maybe emerged is a kind of continuity, uh, right? That that's you know that you want to compare as, as uh, not just discrete objects but kind of continuous objects. Right, right, right. And, I'm, and I just want to clarify that I'm using those in a popular sense, not necessarily a mathematical sense. <laughs> <laughs> and when you when you uh, Anil, when you compare cultures, for example, they are they are multi-dimensional, right? There's so many mm-hmm. different axes on which one can do these things. So, but. Clearly, when you do it, you have to do it in a concrete kind of way. Mm-hmm. So, right, right. So, but but here, Jayadev uh, and and also Sunil have both uh, emphasized this question of liminality, which is a very important way in which we could perhaps take this conversation a bit further. Sure. You uh, you look at cultures, and I would say cultures not in this A and B, but in families of cultures which you compare in various different ways. Mm-hmm. Now, if you do that, then then what has happened in history is. Again, colonialism is an important uh, reason for this, that you have tended to say that, you know, cultures which are internally very differentiated with lots of, you know, different uh, patterns in them get, because of power, are homogenized hmm, and become monadic structures. hmm? And as homogenized monadic structures, they enter into a comparative situation with other homogenized structures. So that either in the extreme situation you have a clash, Mm -hmm. you fight, Mm -hmm. you have wars, or in a more peaceful situation you have a dialogue. Which means, which which is roughly the same thing. But but in in the liminal ways, you know, these these monadic structures don't exist. The borders are porous, Mm? they intermingle, they're sort of, you know, get into closer to each other or further or closer or further and in that liminal situation innovations take place new genres develop new theories develop new ways of looking at the world develop whereas in the homogenized states you have everything is you know centralized and from the centralized space there's nothing which can actually do more than either have a war with somebody or have a dialogue with somebody mm-hmm. so this similarity concept means that you have porous borders which 
allow you partly to go in this direction, partly to go in that direction. And that is also the key for the translatability of these things. Translation arises and there the question, notion of, you know, having groups interact with each other becomes very important. So supposing you want to translate something, it's not a one-to-one question. It's a question of how much overlap is there. I remember a brilliant article in which uh, it was suggested that, you know, how do you translate, a key, are key terms translatable? Hmm? Uh, Octavio Paz has written some very nice lines saying the key, right. term, key terms are not translatable. I mean, mukti is not exactly, you know... Freedom or whatever. Freedom or, or right. you know... Right. It does not mean liberation. Hmm? Mm. It, 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 and and you, then what you do is you create one... Around mukti, you create families of relationships and you find out how you could work around it and then think in terms of a flexibility of translation. So this is how, how, how many similarities would interlock with each other and create a translate, translation situation. Because so the basic Anil, underlying, theorem, underlying a lot of what you're saying and the way you articulate it is this assumption that you yourself mm-hmm. mentioned a while ago that everything is interconnected. Yes. But isn't there such a notion as uniqueness? Isn't there such a notion as singularity? Aren't, are, are there mathematical objects, there, for example, which might not be comparable to anything else? I mean, uh, of course... I understand we are in very, very general territory, but why, is everything representable in terms of others or translatable to others or at least derivable from others? When are there, are there, so you, you use the notion of a monad, are there other yeah. mathematical objects, for example, which are singular in, 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 in what they are? I, I, yes, but I don't think that's a contradiction to what Anil is saying. I think, in fact, it, it's an, it adds to what Anil is saying. So you mm-hmm. have objects, you know, as he said, things that cannot be exactly translated, right? Mukti doesn't exactly mean uh, liberation. liberation. Moksha doesn't exactly mean salvation. Yeah, yes, exactly. But uh, the point is, you can only understand them in relation and in comparison. And, you know, in this in this context of a family. So yes, things can be unique. So if you stay in the mathematical context, um, are there... Are there Situations, objects in the algebraic domain that don't have equivalence in the geometric space or the topological space don't have in a yes. strict sense. I mean, there are when you negotiate the terms of comparison. When you when you say I'm going to work in algebra, I'm going to work in I'm going to work in this category, I'm going to work in that category. You then have to negotiate the terms of comparison, and there may not be an exact analogy. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'll, I'll let you guys in on a little secret. As mathematicians, when we work, we're off. Many of us will use the term spiritually similar. Now, that has no mathematical content, explicit content, but it's part (laughs) of the practice of mathematics. We may say, hey, this relationship looks kind of like that relationship. Even if it's not a technical thing, you might say, ah, and that sparks off ideas. So the practice of mathematics, I want to distinguish the practice of mathematics from the sort of platonic ideal of mathematics. And in the practice of mathematics, every relationship has an analogy. And you mean that in a reasonably strict sense? I mean that in a reasonably... So spiritually similar would simply mean something that is yet unknown, but it may be known in the next 500 years, 1,000 years. Huh, it may be a shadow of a pattern that we haven't seen yet, or it might not be. It might just be an inspiration. You know, you see this connection and you make a connection in your head. Right. Is everything translatable? Um, no, I agree with uh, what's been said here. No, everything's not, not just trans- at the level of words, but even at the level of couplets, at the level of a guzzle. Uh, I mean, no, but I think one you- has to attempt it you know, try to find um, <laughs> cultural equivalences. And that's, you know, one of the, 
I think um, uh, uh, one of the central points of translation theory um, these days. Um, and, and I like the metaphor that Anil used here about war or peace. And or I dialogue. Fu- or di- I dialogue. <laughs> that, you know, you can either say, no, these languages, you know, are completely, or literatures are completely different. There's no point in translating them. They'll never come together. Or you can find a way to do it. And historically, it's been done in very interesting ways. And um, as you were talking about it, I thought of the the one of my favorite uh, poems by Ami Khusro, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I'm sure you've all heard in a Kavali, um, which has half a line in Persian and half in Hindi, you know, Zehale miskin makunta ghaful durai nena banai batia. And, you know, people take it very lightly. It's very beautiful. But I've written about this. I've thought about this. You know, what is Khusro trying to do in a poem like that. And he doesn't have a lot like that. We have his Persian, you know, over, and we have his Hindi, Hindi kind of over. But when he has a poem like that, um, and I've heard it sung with the Persian line, half line being sung by a male voice and the Hindi by a female <laughs> voice. Mm-hmm. And they're expressions of two systems of love, that the male voice is the Persian tradition with a very homoerotic kind of male love expressed um, without gender, you know, in, in the language. Um, and then in the... Persian doesn't have grammatical gender. Exactly. So that you can do a lot of uh, things with that in terms of ambiguity of the beloved, etc. Um, and then the Hindi poem in the voice of a woman, a virahini, who's longing for a lover. And, and that is, you know, Khusro is really bringing these two poetic systems together, but putting them in conversation with each other. And do these two lines talk to each other? They do, if you go through that. They're not independent. <laughs> They're not independent. They're, you know, and so again, that's a, a, lo, you know, a, a problem, sort of an academic problem with the history of the Ghazal is that <laughs> do we read couplets separately as a, you know, uh, like oriental pearls uh, strung, uh, you know, or um, do we look at the unity of a ghazal together? And it really varies, uh, you know, at different times in history. So there's no... But if uh, we take the, again, I mean, we're using the notions in very, very different senses, but if if there's unity to the ghazal, then it's not necessarily referring to anything else before or after it, right? So that's the... It's a, there's a lot of intertextuality hmm. in the Ghazal, and that's where another mode of comparison comes into that, you know, whether we're talking about now the Persian Ghazal or Urdu Ghazal, that there are ways in which a poet will respond to a classical master, as you know, in trying to do homage to it or write in a certain what we call Zameen or, you know, uh, Radif Kafia, the rhyme and, uh, uh, you know, the meter um, is a way that, you know, you at first reading you may not realize that this is actually, um, you know, responding to an older or even a contemporary ghazal, for instance, in a competition. But some kind of imitation. Yeah, and, and, and that's a very rich area of comparison, mm. you know, that uh, you can compare um, within the tradition, you know, or across linguistic traditions, for instance, um, um, one of my uh, favorite poets uh, uh, in the uh, Urdu, old Urdu Dakhni tradition is the, the, the ruler of Golconda, Muhammad Kuli Kutub Shah. And in some of his ghazals, he actually tried to translate Hafiz's Persian ghazals into a Dakhni Urdu that was still struggling to find 
a voice, but we only have four or five such poems where which you could say that are direct translations mm. of Persian. Um, so yet there's something you know uh, going on that's beyond the aesthetic there. That it's not just the pleasure mm. of finding words in another language, right? But how do you express something that is so Persian? And you can't get more Persian than Hafiz if you, uh, you know, know your Sufi poet. So that how do you express that in a kind of an Indian language, in an Indian cultural context? Um, and, and that's where I think some of the, what, the uniqueness you were talking about also lies, these kinds of um, experiments. And as far as I know, nobody attempted that. Um, after him, mm. because uh, you know, um, you you responded by writing your own ghazal mm. to the same rhyme or you know a, a topic even, but you didn't try to translate a master. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. There's there's an interesting idea here, isn't it, Jaydev? That for example, if if one looks at geometry or topology or any of these few mega sub branches of mathematics. So the devices or the techniques that one uses within that sub-branch, um, are they very distinct and different which don't necessarily carry to comparison between the two, if you know what I mean? Yeah, so of course I'm only qualified to speak about the areas of mathematics I practice in. Sure. But I would say, yes, there are very different techniques and uh, you know, you're trained in different techniques, you're trained in a school, in a, you know, but... Like I said, the most exciting mathematics happens when people using maybe different, you know, maybe bring a technique from one discipline into another. Uh, and is there similarity in the techniques themselves? Yes, absolutely. So I, I don't, I, you know, let me think of an example. Comparison is a really good, good, good example of a, a similarity in technique. You're always wanting to compare objects in certain ways, mm-hmm. and you know, in the topological category, you're working with something called homeomorphism. You're working with, you know, the shape is the same. Right. Whereas in the geometric uh, category, you're working with isometry, where you want to know that the distance the is distances the same. are the same. But isometries are often homeomorphisms. So right. are, are homeomorphisms when you... Uh, but, uh, but isometries must all, always be homeomorphic, no? Isometries are homeomorphisms. You know, you have a distance and so you have a topology. So yes, they preserve and they're continuous. But you can have isomorphic isometric embeddings, which are not homeomorphisms between the spaces. So you can have a right. bigger space embedded into a smaller space. Mm. So, mm. yes, there are deep similarities in techniques, but there's also, you know, there's many fields of mathematics that I'm completely unqualified to speak about, and I, I wouldn't dare to speak about their techniques. But I love sitting down with mathematicians who work in different fields than I do to hear about what they do, and then... You know, again, maybe it's just a spiritual similarity that it gets gets an inspiration. But these, I, I want to keep driving home this idea of liminality and think the exciting things happen at the boundaries of two things. Not to say that exciting things don't happen within the middle no. of things, but for me, this is where I like to live. I, sure. you know, no, that's interesting. Yeah. I think, for example, in some of the contexts that you're speaking about, maybe the volume is preserved, maybe the distances are preserved, a bunch of these things are preserved. But for example, in if we go to your context, uh, Anil. And, you know, there might be a cultural contact or contact of another sort. Um, is there a way of thinking of transformations more deeply? I think, and, I think everything, yeah. both, both, both uh, what uh, we have heard just now, Sunil and Jayadev, would suggest to me that we think in terms of migration more seriously. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Uh, these translations, liminalities are processes of migration from one 
ിക്ക് but 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 god can't be talked to you know <laughs> the uniqueness emerges out of a total isolation from any other communication the you are there's something unique a diamond could be unique but then but then what do i do with the diamond you know uh, but everything else is contaminated and contamination in a positive sense of the term contamination migration translatability means that you do not that you give up the notion of authenticity and 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 the pure so in a sense you're saying that interacting systems cannot be unique well i wouldn't put it I that mean, way it's, it's, i would say that uh, i want to make it sound that, like a theorem I would, but i would say that what we have internalized now is uh, we over uh, emphasize the importance of uniqueness whereas I would put it the other way. Let us let us emphasize for some time uh, the absence of authenticity, the notion of 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 uh, of commun- uh, communicability in terms of contamination, lack of purity, uh, all these lovely things. You know, painting mixtures. In fact, let us emphasize mixture, hmm? mm. and uh, instead of you know, and 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 uh, and this mixture is a very imp- a painter, for instance, thinks in terms of how do how do colors phase into each other. How do we? F- I mean. similarities how do we phase things into each other how does a watercolor run into each other what is a nuance that is a, a nuance is a, is is a very important thing and the and i'm not really very very up on the literature of mathematics in it but whenever i sub, now and then i've read a little bit of this it is this which has struck me what you call spiritual similarity when i read dedekind's uh, book on what is number you know, he keeps talking about similarity and i have great problems of understanding it because then he goes into formal <laughs> form he tries to put it into formal terms now i do follow it to some extent but not completely that is a, that is why i find it very important to talk to physicists and mathematics for whom similarity is very normal you know for the, the, in fact for me the shocking thing was that whereas i am struggling in culture studies to emphasize similarity against the tradition of foucault which talks of difference 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 mathematicians say isme problem kya hai we always we always think in terms of similarity analogy similarity are the sources of our creativity hmm? now it has taken culture studies a long time to understand that this is so but it is it is it is only as a result of this emphasis on translation and translatability and reflections on why is untranslatability such a topic you see that that well, will... the question is one is one is dealing with this question at the academic level at the level of scholarship to try and understand mm. this phenomena but if one were to think of it sociologically and what happens everything in, i'm saying is political yes in 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 day to day terms i'm, I'm only how, being how... politely uh, non political sure, sure, but sure. what whatever we are talking about is actually political what is the problem of the world today is this homogenization in terms of religion in terms of you know identity politics etc in order to create 
create uh, un unrest, uh, 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 loss of tranquility is a result of this. All this is political. The moment we say that there is a greater degree of similarity between us than difference, then we enter into the possibility that we have similar spaces, similar habits, similar ways of interacting. Sure, there are areas in which we don't interact, but that's a good thing. I mean, right. we don't want complete identity. We don't want to be completely same, but we also don't want to be completely different. The, 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 the slogan which should be this, we don't want unity in diversity, we want similarity in diversity. But we want diversity. But, but with similarity. And, and when you talk of migration uh, at the level of language and culture and all that, then we are actually talking about the need of, we are talking about today's world, you know. Today's world is a migratory world. A philosophy of migration would be a philosophy of similarity. And is this just a continuum, similar, similar to different? Is it? Is it? Well, is it just ideal, a question of measure? Is it a question of less and more? Is it a question of? And one not, can think really, of it in any domain. I really would not would not know whether I should put it in that way. But but I would say that it's it's a question of perspective. It's the way you look at the world. Uh, if you look at the world in terms of connectedness... But there is such a thing as less and more similar. Of course, that is the overlap. I mean, overlap, for instance, the, in the question of... Suppose you make a, one of these overlapping structures to in order to find out how to translate mukti. Hmm? And you get from German, from English, from other languages, all sort of, you know, circles. And you make sure. them interact and say, huh, in German, that word interacts more with mukti. And in the English word does not interact with mukti and all that. Then you find a way of translating it. Then there are more, there are greater overlaps and there are lesser overlaps. Right. But if you look at the world as an interconnected Zusammenhang, hmm? mm. then uh, then we have the whole question of similarity, not in terms of less and more similarity or, or or less and more in that sense. But I think the mathematician would not put it that way. But mathematician, is there a notion of measure here at all? I, well, can maybe. I can yes. I pick up on something he was saying here? So so the the notion of overlaps and and going through you know, several stages of overlaps to make a meaningful comparison mm -hmm. is a very important notion in mathematics. So mm -hmm. we've been talking a lot about geometry and topology. If you have a topological object and you want to put some kind of geometric structure on it, not necessarily measuring distance, but we can talk about measuring distance or we can talk about maybe wanting to do analysis on it. Mm -hmm. The key idea is what's called an atlas of charts. Okay. So the idea is in each part of the topological space, there's a little neighborhood, which I can identify with some known space. Mm -hmm. And then these neighborhoods overlap. And I can get from anywhere to anywhere else by a chain of these overlaps. Mm -hmm. So in the end, I can compare these two things in a continuous family by using these overlaps. So the adjacent ones are similar to each other in some sense. The, but you The adjacent ones have an intersection and, and now different choices of atlas of charts might make different point places sure. show up in different intersections. So using different eyes might help us see different similarities. So I really want to emphasize, I mean, this is a, when you said this the chain of overlaps idea, it really brought to my head this idea of an atlas of charts. Mm. Uh, and, you know, even the language, atlas of charts is very, mm. coming from cartography, it, it sounds very humanistic. Yes. Mm. And, uh, and it's graded. It's it yeah uh, it's it's um, yeah uh, again maybe to some extent the notion of continuity that he was speaking about a little while ago absolutely I mean these are this when I, in this particular category I'm talking about continuous objects and I'm talking about how to understand if I want to say do calculus on this I have to know what it means to be differentiable mm. and in there I have to identify each neighborhood with a space where I already know how to do differentiability. Right. And then I have to compare in the overlaps. Yeah. But the idea is you have these overlaps. 
And because of these overlaps, you can do what you need to do. Um, and, and I also want to echo the fact that everything that we've been talking about, especially in the context of people, is deeply political. And in this moment in particular, when we have a world that's going towards power, using power to other people, to, to say that you know the, 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 the nation is only a certain group of people and everybody outside doesn't belong, it is deeply important to focus on shared humanity, shared things, rather than constantly focusing on the things that are yeah. incommensurable. Yeah. So. Yeah. And if we think of it in um, your domain, uh, Sunil, I mean, we've, for example, family of languages. I mean, so is there, is there some kind of an equivalent of Atlas of Charts happening there? Absolutely. So there think were all of kinds of for example. bells going off <laughs> in my head as uh, I was listening to this. Um, um, and on the one hand, if you think about it, you know, um, and I also like the, you know, the, the idea of... So, uh, something connecting, you know, um, sort of various and, and uh, you know, large groups of um, uh, people. And, and if you think of the Persian language or um, sort of the more um, uh, current term, academic term, Persianate, Persianate. Um, right, societies which were influenced by uh, Persian, um, so that on the, you know, Persian and um, North Indian languages. So how do you define Persianate? Persianate. Like, do they, do the languages have something in well, common? Or they could not still really, that's what family. I was going to say. Yes. That, say, you know, Persian and say North Indian languages, of course, the Indo-Aryan languages are related mm -hmm. linguistically, mm -hmm. but for something like Turkish, it's a completely different language family, so that what connects it is the culture and the literature. And the context so, and where the they context came to be. And the, the, the kind of, you know, the way they first derived inspiration from Persian, but without getting into the hierarchy of uh, literary cultures that, you know, Anil was talking about, that it was not always sort of the Persian was high culture and, you know, Urdu and Turkish or, you know, what Uzbek and Kurdish, these are kind of always deriving inspiration, but it's a two-way street. But I was thinking that if you think about this um, atlas of charts and you start off with a, you know, a, a, a ghazal in Hyderabad or Golconda, and if you look at the overlapping structures and cultures, you'll end up in Istanbul <laughs> with the Turkish ghazal in the, you know, right. uh, they don't write ghazals there anymore, but they used to. Right. Uh, but, uh, and but you mean that in a strict sense again? Absolutely. So. I mean, first of all, um, you know, uh, in that kind of larger connected world, uh, what was produced in Delhi or Agra could be read in, um, you know, in Istanbul or Bukhara within a few months uh, because going back to migration again too, that there's a migration of texts as well. So right. not just people traveling, but circulation and migration of texts that, you know, it's amazing how, you know, texts traveled, you know, uh, from, from not just one court to another, but, you know, long distances so that you have, um, the, the, you end up with this kind of atlas of charts is that one sort of through processes of translation, circulation, migration, you know, an idea, a poetic image, or even a, a poem with a particular rhyme uh, or refrain that appeared in one language shows up in another yeah. language in a different culture within a few years. And I'm talking about the pre-modern period here, of course. So the translation is not necessarily only textual. It could be could be of other forms as well. Absolutely. And, and, and one of the things, this is... Um, uh, uh, something I've been um, 
discussing with my art history colleagues is that um, that you know uh, when we look at uh, you know uh, uh, literary texts um, and and how they are illustrated mm-hmm. uh, because uh, there was a tradition of illustrated uh, for instance romances and sometimes even guzzles were illustrated even though guzzles don't have a narrative <laughs> to tell but but another example you know for instance the story of um you know the romance of leila majnun right, right? written uh, an arabic sort of uh, tale arab tale it was never actually written in arabic uh, first written in persian then you know in uh, by persian poets in india and then turkish and all these different languages now when you look at um, you know uh, how these uh, stories get illustrated in you know by artists in the 16th 17th 18th centuries um you you know you find a very different aesthetic and it's not just that there are different artistic traditions of representation mm. but they are reading those stories in a different way they they're making meaning of those texts within their culture in different ways so it's the same basic story which gets you know some details get modified as it moves across cultures you will have some instances where leila dies first in some versions majnun dies first and you know etc uh, there are all these variations um but essentially the story remains the same but artists are 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 illustrating you know so so there's a visual translation yeah. going on there um which i think has to be compared very carefully to verbal translation because there are two different modes of representation and this is where um uh, scholars are still in a you know in a bit shaky ground we are starting to talk about these things and this is again across disciplines we have to you know um bring in sort of methodologies from other disciplines um uh, and uh, so whether it's history or art history um uh, you know to supplement the kind of the literary theory and cultural studies approach that most of us um, uh, you know textual scholars have um, sure, but i sure, think there's sure. a, there's a great degree of um, you know or a potential for comparison um, across forms as well so what's the yeah. open question sunil what's the open question what's the future like what's the what's the future are, are, are there technical innovations happening clearly all the time i would imagine in mathematics all the time and mm. i have you know mathematics already is uh i don't want to say unrecognizable to me i mean i've been doing research in mathematics for you know 17 years now uh but it has there are massive technical innovations happening all the time but i want to respond to something that sunil was saying um about this doing this compare you know having this same object translated in different ways uh so you have the story of leila and majnu translated both as a text and as an artistic as a visual artistic uh thing and i was thinking about how those two different idioms you know if you have an idiom in one language and you want to translate it yeah. an idiom in one visual tradition and you want to make a new thing and i was actually thinking about the spirit the the, the similarity of that to how you would work across disciplines within mathematics mm-hmm. you would take an idiom in one thing and you'd say hey this kind of looks like in my idiom in this other thing uh right so that really wrong i mean i think that really rang a bell with me this this c- comparison of idioms um and it's fascinating so yeah so in answer to your question absolutely there's wild technical innovation happening you know every minute of every day in mathematics 
Uh, it's hard to predict which of that innovation is going to be remembered 500 years from now, if anybody, if anything is remembered 500 years from now, who knows. Mm. But it's very exciting as it happens. Mm. What's the future, Anil? The future is exciting. But uh, but to carry on in this same, In this context. In this context, the same way, I would say that, for instance, for, in literature, culture theory, there's a tremendous amount of innovation which is a dialectical link to what you might call reinterpretation or, or, a, or a slight change in perspective. Much of what we are talking about is... Is this is is what is now uh, would I would call something related to the discussion international discussion on what is world literature now that now that world literature term which Goethe actually coined in the 19th Goethe, century yeah. uh, was falsely interpreted as the great classics and all that you know it's nothing to do with that world literature is the system or shall we say the process of production circulation and translation of texts which Sunil was talking about and you were talking about in and the liminality question so so if we have a process of world literature if we have a process of connectedness if we have a process of translation uh, if we have a process in which shared commonalities lead us to a, perhaps a better world, a better in, in inverted commas, you know, I don't know what that would mean. But anyway, if we have something then, then it is, it is, it is that kind of innovation which is exciting. And I think that comes out of, of, of these discussions and, and what will the world look like is if we take all this seriously. It's, it's so a democratic it's, process, I think. In a world of world literature, 500 years out, a thousand years out or whenever that might be, uh, there would still be English literature, there would still be Persian course, literature. Of course, there would be. But it would be a different way of looking at English literature. You sure. see, right now we look upon compartments. You know, we are... We are because we, the underlying anxiety, I would imagine, Anil, must be some kind of a fear of loss of could, identity. Could, right? Could, that's could, the, that's the kind of thing be. that drives emphasis on difference yeah. as opposed to similarity. It's it's an architectural problem, I would say that. You know, we, we, we have different rooms. Hmm? And hmm. we enter those rooms through doors. Hmm? Hmm. But supposing we have a different kind of an architecture which allows us to float in and float out. Hmm? And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's actually a literary metaphor I'm using. If we float in and float out, if we, if we change, if we have transformations, if we have process of metamorphosis, you know, the, then it's, it's a different kind of a way of looking at, looking at the fact that there are, of course, distincted. There's, there's distinctiveness. Instead of uniqueness, I would say there's distinctness. The distinctness is very valuable. I, I, I want to treasure my poem in English or in Urdu or whatever it is. I don't want to lose it. But I also want to see it in, in, in other contexts, in other, in other relationships. And that is the cusp of the matter, I think, which we, which we are struggling with right now. Because the world is also, there's an equally powerful movement to say, no, we are not interconnected. We are, we are in hierarchies and all that. I may be nice to you, but I don't want, want you to come... Hmm? Yeah. And again, implicit in the way you articulate it is the fact that if there is emphasis on similarity, then that does not have a homogenizing tendency. Absolutely not. On the contrary, similarity makes you understand diversity much better. Mm. And you value diversity much more if you realize, if you can, in, in syncretic terms, you can understand religions much better. How can one be sure of that, Anil? Sorry to push you on this. Oh, you can push me there because you can, can, never, be be sure? Sure. You can never be sure. But you can at least have a... Uh, hazard, can have hazard, more like confidence? A, a, mathem a mathematician would be say it's, it's possible to hazard this guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In, uh, I would hazard the guess that it is... It is it so why don't we end with this? What's the source of the confidence that emphasis on similarity 
does not have a homogenizing tendency the confidence is basically the confidence with which various people and various times of histories when they were repressed also developed the possibility of resistance in the hope that something better would emerge that's all confidence comes through history exactly we need to look at the past yes i think the future is in the past yeah. what is in the past it's in this context again in the context of emphasis on similarity and homogenization again to speak from a sort of uh, my position is that you know um we had persian in the past and it was not a uniform persian all the way from istanbul right. to bengal it was different you know it was the same language but people did different things with it so we can do actually a comparison of those differences but with you know under a sort of larger kind of overarching um um not just aesthetic kind of model but also historical and political because this literature is always implicated in um politics and i think language is important here too because um uh, you know with world literature it's it's gaining a lot of uh, popularity in fact it's in in the west it's replacing comparative literature in some places my own department changed from comparative literature to world literature and the <laughs> the the danger is that if you read things in translation and you start doing comparison and you can do then you know really amazing stuff you know chinese court poetry to uh you know to sanskrit court poetry or persian court poetry or something like that or devotional poetry in different languages um uh, you will lose out too you have to go back to the languages and have kind of a solid training and 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 appreciating multilinguality that our society was never you know monolingual sure sure every great mathematical innovation has come from bringing different streams of mathematical thought together nothing has come from siloing it and if if anything mathematics is in the going in the opposite direction of homogenization so. yeah it's 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 a wildly <laughs> diverse thing i mean i'll i'll make a very very simple analogy when you When you go into a garden and you see an enormous number of flowers and so on you can you appreciate the garden for what it is but that doesn't take away from the unique beauty of each individual flower or each Plus. individual petal or each individual part of the flower so seeing a, this thing as a as a as a massive union doesn't mean seeing ourselves as as essentially human and essentially similar doesn't mean losing any of what makes us uniquely us but it does allow us to understand each other better so I think yeah looking to the past and looking to confluences and things coming together that's where every great I hazard to say human innovation has come from. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, oh, thank you. That's a great note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we we'll look forward you. to having you soon again. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.